For several evenings now, we have discussed two different sets of three models. The first set that we discussed were the models of creation, the models that God created when he created the world. The second set of models are the ones that human beings invented, especially on the plain of Shinar in Mesopotamia. So I'd like to begin by reviewing these models. The models that God created are nature, family, and Sabbath. Nature includes elements like natural law, cause and effect, interdependency, such as we find in the ecosystems, where everything works together for the good of the planet. Family involves love, trust, nurture, intimacy, development. Sabbath represents equality and a relationship with God and others of no slavery. The models that humans invented are economics, kingship, and law, or probably more accurately, contractual relationships. These models represent an attempt by human beings to substitute for relationships of love and trust. Because in the beginning, what God created were relationships of love and trust. So, human beings invented hierarchical relationships, economic relationships, and legal relationships that were contractual in basis in order to maintain their property values, to maintain what they owned, and to keep human beings in line with one another. They formed such relationships not because they trusted one another, but because they didn't trust one another. Why do we form contracts today? It is because we don't trust one another. And so contractual relationships became the basis of, of managing to survive with one another, uh, but not having the fruit of authenticity. So these are the relationships that we have today. God wants a very different relationship with us. He wants an authentic relationship where we know Him and we know we can, he can, tr- we can trust Him and we know that He is love and because He loves us, we love Him back. 
And I'm going to say it even more strongly, that all of our love is not our love. If we have any genuine love, it comes from the source of love, the God who is love. And that's why I take 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us, as an axiom that is stating a, a, a design law in which we are uh, created for love and we get that love from God and we reciprocate it and it becomes a perfect cycle of love. Today's topic is Jesus takes on Babylon. Now, I know some of you are going to raise your eyebrows at some of this because you're going to say, how did Jesus know anything about Babylon? He was centuries later than Babylon. So I want to tell you a little backstory of how Israel went to Babylon. And that happened before they ever physically went there. They began more and more to emulate some of the Babylonian characteristics. For example, the way Solomon embellished the temple had some, some pagan aspects to it. He copied some things. And later kings copied an altar, I believe, from Mesopotamia. And the very idea of having a king to be like the nations around them. Yes, uh, they were, they could, you could say that they were emulating the Phoenicians and the Moabites and the Ammonites and uh, the Edomites and, and so on, Canaanites. But when they, when they got a king, that king in many ways resembled Babylonian kingship. And of course, all of the lesser kings I mentioned, of all those uh, little people groups, themselves emulated, to a certain extent, the kingship that arose in Mesopotamia before those people groups were ever established. So, I'm going to suggest that they went to Babylon, and what happened is that not everybody came back home. So a large group of people stayed in Babylon. They were comfortable there. They had found new life. And while they were there, a lot of teachings from Babylon crept in. A lot of influences took place. Is in much Babylonian in the Babylonian Talmud? Why is it called the Babylonian Talmud? And of course, that's much, much later past Jesus. But uh, we'll come to that in just a moment. They were so influenced by Babylon that there grew up two, two different sets of oral tradition. The oral tradition that came from Jerusalem, from those who came back from Babylon, and the oral tradition that stayed, what came from Babylon, known as later as when it was written down, quite a, a number of centuries later, what Bruce mentioned was the Babylonian Talmud. Margaret Barker, for a number of reasons, some of which I don't agree with, but I agree with her, her conclusion, she believes that the reason John in his gospel refers to the Jews, and he keeps talking about the Jews, and we tend to think, apply that to the whole uh, Jewish community, but there seems to be a particular particularity of how he uses the Jews, that, that title, 
that the reason he does is that he is he is referring to the Jews who came from Babylon. And there was a stream of Babylonian consciousness that came down from their sojourn in Babylon and from those who stayed behind. Who was the person making that case? Margaret Barker is the person who made that case. So I want to address what Jesus does because we know now that ancient Mesopotamia influenced Greece, even Rome, and even Roman Christianity. There's evidence for this. Tonight we'll look at some more of that evidence when I talk about Jesus crucifies Babylon. I mean, sorry, Babylon crucifies Jesus. And you may wonder, how could Babylon crucify Jesus? Well, that's a little bit in quotes, Babylon. Uh, it's the Babylonian influences that you find in Jesus' crucifixion. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to spend some time on Jesus taking on Babylon and its concepts in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I've decided it's, it's good to do a whole set of chat, uh, sermons by Jesus rather than to jump around all through the Gospels. We may do some jumping if we have time, but I'd like to spend some time with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, first of all, you should know that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' statement of the New Covenant. Maybe you haven't thought of that, but I see Matthew as organizing his gospel, his story of Jesus, as the statement of the New Covenant. You have the blessings that Jesus starts out with. And later, you have Jesus' version of the curses in Matthew 23. Only he calls them woes instead of curses. And we'll come to what that significance of that is. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have the New Covenant. You have the, the stipulations. So, in a sense, Jesus is taking a very old form of the covenant in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we have the covenant actually restated in ancient Near Eastern treaty form. You have the prologue, you have the stipulations, you have the curses. That's ancient treaty form. In Exodus, in the covenant, you don't have the curses. So it's not true ancient Near Eastern treaty form. But in Deuteronomy, it seems to have been formulated to resemble the ancient Near Eastern treaties, particularly those of Assyria. And uh, those of you who have been here from night to night know that we discussed how in Ezra Haddon's succession treaty, Sennacherib calls for them to love Ezra Haddon or else. Uh, and it has that uh, inauthenticity of loving someone under a gun, as it were, or maybe under a sword. How do you do that and genuinely love someone? It's not possible. Perfect love casts out fear. 
So let's look at the Beatitudes. These are the blessings. And you notice that Jesus does not use, if he's speaking Hebrew, and there's, there's some scholars who contend that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, but whether or not it was, uh, Jesus is using a salutation very familiar to those who spoke Hebrew, which in Jerusalem, by the way, they, they did during the time of Jesus. But he uses a different term than Baruch. Baruch is blessed. And a lot of translators translate blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed. But the actual word is taken from the Psalms. The word for blessed in the Psalms is, is uh, now I'm thinking Greek, Ashri. And Ashri, in, translated into Greek, is makaroi. Makaroi, sorry. It's been a while since I've looked at this word. It means happy in both languages. It means happy. So when Jesus takes the blessings, note that he starts the new covenant with the blessings instead of with the stipulations. And he says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sounds like an oxymoron. How can people who are poor in spirit that sounds like they're depressed. How can they be happy? And then even more of a problem is blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the- <laughs> or happy are those who mourn. How can you be happy when you mourn? Happy are the sad, yeah. And happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This, this is, sounds like an upside down model that Jesus is introducing. And in Babylon, nobody said you were happy if you mourned. Nobody said you were happy if you were poor in spirit. In fact, nobody aspired to be poor in spirit. The kings showed a great deal of arrogance and posturing of pride. Oh, they might pretend at certain instances to be humble, but they gloried in their power. And here Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Most uh, commentators, I believe, suggest that this means to be fill one's spiritual need. This is very upside down, not to the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible emphasizes coming to repentance, which is a process of humility, of, of recognizing our spiritual need, recognizing our fallenness, and and turning around from it back to God. But to the Babylonians, uh, mourning and repenting is not something they're used to doing. Uh, the, the, turning, the, the same word that is used for repentance in Hebrew that I mentioned last night was used in Akkadian, uh, in Akkadian form. That's the Babylonian language. It's used mostly of the gods turning around and coming back to their worshippers not of the worshippers turning around and coming back to the gods. And then, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In a hierarchical society, the meek are at the bottom. And, and how can you say they are happy? How can you say that they are blessed? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, the kings tended to 
posture hungering and thirsting for righteousness in ancient Mesopotamia. And they hoped to be just kings, that is, kings who made sure everybody was treated well and that they weren't guilty of frauding, defrauding people. But they didn't understand and have a concept for hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, in Babylon, gods were seen as merciful. And even kings could be seen as merciful from time to time. But in the same breath that they were merciful, gods were also angry and, and wrathful. Uh, we talked a lot about God's wrath last night. And those of you who are here know that I came to the conclusion that God's wrath is, is giving people what they want. Like he gave Moses when he got angry with him for saying, God, please send someone else. He says then, okay, what about Aaron? Gives Moses what he wants. Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, and 28 speaks of God's wrath as giving people up to the consequences of their choice, giving them what they want. So God, in his telling Moses who he is in Exodus 33 and 34, he refers to his goodness as his character. His character is goodness. And he gives the attributes. Not one of them is wrath. The closest you get to it is slow to anger. Slow to anger is the Hebrew form of patience. Patience is the opposite of anger. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We've talked about how the models that the Babylonians created led to disingenuous relationships. They led to uh, hypocrisy. Not purity in heart, where we're honest to the very core of our being. And to truly be pure in heart is to have a pure love relationship with God that is, comes from His love, because His love alone is pure. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If you would study the ancient Near East, it's something like the Middle East today. War after war after war. Nobody really wanted peace, particularly in terms of equality. The only peace they knew was if they became allies. And the way you became allies, and this is in the second millennium more than the first millennium, the way you became allies is that the king of one of one ally would give his daughter in marriage to the king of another ally and the king of the other ally would give his daughter in marriage back to the king of the first ally. And the reason for having daughters marry the kings is because then the daughter could keep tabs on what that king was doing, what her husband the king was doing, so that if there was any infraction of the treaty, she could report back home to her father. So it was a very contractual relationship and a very political one and a very tenuous one. In the first millennium, the most common 
forms of these kinds of contractual relationships in the treaties were the suzerain vassal treaties where you have an overlord under duress of conquest forcing its vassal to pay tribute to adhere to a treaty in which they profess loyalty and love peacemakers almost an unknown concept in ancient Mesopotamia I'm going to skip 10 and 11 because, well, I, I, will, I will read them carefully and then I will um, mention one thing in passing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is the great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What do we know about Babylon persecuting people? This should be very easy to answer. Daniel? Which chapter in Daniel? Five? Six? Six would be one. That's under Persian, though. Oh, is it four? It's three. three. Yeah, three. Daniel three in the fiery furnace. And that, by the way, lies behind some of the language and statements of Revelation. We'll be talking a little bit about Revelation tonight. So Jesus comes on in uh, the Law and the Prophets. I'm going to skip the salt and the light. And go to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And one way to interpret that word fulfill is to explain. Jesus came to explain the law. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the audience went, what? You think about that last li- those last lines. Who was known for keeping the law? The scribes and Pharisees. Why does Jesus end on that note when he's just said, if, if you don't keep the law... Why? Because the law is the law of love. And they didn't keep that law at all. And the law of love can only happen with the love of God in our hearts. It's something we cannot create and manufacture. It is something God has to give to us and we have to ask for it. So Jesus starts out, and it's interesting that the first laws that he starts out with are ones about anger. You have heard that it was said, I'm in verse 21, to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. Where was that said? Ten Commandments. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Jesus condemns anger. Without a cause. Uh, my version, 
uh, has that left out, and it has a footnote. It says a brother is another option. Uh, and other ancient authorities add without cause. So the New Revised Standard Version carefully looked at the textual critical uh, apparatus and concluded that the, mo the most ancient versions had that left out, but that was a later edition. But Jesus was angry when he went into the temple and he cleared off the money changers. He was angry when he was doing that. Do you think it was human anger at all? No. Was Jesus human? He was human, he was also divine, and, and divinity flashed through humanity in that moment. Yeah, absolutely true, but that means there is, a, there is good anger. It's when you let anger control you, and when you're just angry at someone for doing something silly, let's say you're going through the Taco Bell drive-thru and they mess up your order, and you're like, ugh, they messed up my order. That's not, that's not righteous anger, that's not righteous vindication. That's pity, that's stupid. And that's not the anger that, that we're talking about. Right, in Jesus, not Jesus, Elijah, he mocked people. He mocked the prophets of Baal. He's like, come on, louder. He's a god, isn't he? Anger is not evil. Because you cannot control whether you're angry or not. Okay, let, let, me, let me reiterate what I told last night. In the first book of the Bible, in, you have the flood, you have Sodom and Gomorrah, you have the Cain and Abel story. The only one angry... In the entire book of Genesis is Cain. God is grieved. So go to Mark chapter 3. This is a man with a withered hand who comes to church. And they're watching Jesus to see if he's going to heal him or not. And he said to the man, verse 3, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. He was grieved because he loved them. His anger was for them, not against them. Love is always for. God doesn't cease to be love and loving when he's angry. He's always for the person, not against. And yeah. when he the temple, the people come, they're not scared of him. The no. Only, the only people who are scared of him are the ones who are doing wrong. Right. And that's because I believe there was the glory of God's presence there, and it, it shoved them all out the door, as you might say. Um, we're going to come to that temple cleansing if we have time. But I see God's anger at its very heart as grief, intense grief. And, and the reason the Bible uses anger as a term, and by the way, in all the retellings of, this, of the cleansing of the temple, it never says that Jesus was angry. It just says what he did. But I believe the reason the Bible writers chose anger is it's the closest word they could come to this intense grief that God, Jesus has for people where he's really uh, grieving in a way that we, we can't easily emulate. It's enormous emotion. So he says, But I say to you, you will be, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come on terms, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is promoting reconciliation between two estranged and angry parties. And I would like to suggest that in Babylon, it was okay to have any kind of anger. And as I mentioned last night, there are two words. One, hot, immediate anger uh, that controls you, and then you let it go. And then there's the studied anger that is an anger that is an attribute of a character. And I, the weight of evidence in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God does not have anger as a part of his character. If you look at his seminal statement of who he is in Exodus 33 and 34, anger is not mentioned except for slow to anger at patience. So, moving on, concerning adultery. Adultery was rampant throughout the ancient Near East. So, I, I don't know whether to point to Babylon as the origin of that uh, or not. But it was rampant. And, and in Israel, it was rampant. You could, If your wife burned the bread at breakfast, you could write her a certificate of divorce and send her out the door, and she had to leave. It was that easy to divorce. Let's move on to oaths. This is going to prove very important. When Caiaphas makes Jesus swear by oath that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, or tries to make him, Jesus doesn't actually comply, as we'll find out tonight. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, and in verse 33, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one, or from evil. Oath-giving was very common in the ancient Near East, and probably originated with Babylon. It was a way to contractualize any promise you made. And if you didn't keep that promise, the oath meant that the gods would punish you. And so it was really believed in until the first millennium. In the first millennium, uh, the priests, the, the Babylonian priests, uh, forsook the, the judicial oath. The judicial oath was where you swore your innocence by the gods. You went to the temple and you swore your innocence by the gods. And that was deemed your, in, your uh, achieving exoneration and vindication. 
But they forsook that because you had to wait so long to find out if the gods were going to come back and punish them for perjury that they wanted more control and so they adopted a more legal way of doing that using witnesses. But this oath, Jesus says, don't even swear an oath. And we'll see how tonight, hopefully, we'll see how Jesus didn't actually swear the way he was told to. Now here we come to something that is extremely Babylonian. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is called the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Who invented that law? Anybody? Moses. Moses has it in his writings, doesn't he? Three times, with specific laws. It's not an overarching principle. It is a, a statement tacked on to specific laws that enable the, the lawyers, the people, the judges, to determine the parameters of the law. But it's only found three times. But Moses lived after it was invented. Uh, Moses is around 1450. Use the conservative date. If you go back far enough to Hammurabi, you find the Lex Talionis in his laws, or called Laws of Hammurabi. And some think it's an innovation of Hammurabi. Now, it's possible that he got it from his Amorite heritage, but the first record we have of the Lex Talionis in writing is the, are the Laws of Hammurabi. So when Jesus strikes against this, he is... He is going right to Hammurabi, in a sense. Now, again, whether this is a conscious thing or not is immature, immaterial. The influence of Babylon has a long shadow. Uh, Hammurabi's laws... Hammurabi lived in 1750 B.C., so about 300 years before Moses. His laws were revived and copied by scribes during Nebuchadnezzar's time. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. This is eye for eye, not eye for eye. And then he says, love your enemies. This is a very hard saying for the Hebrews, and it's a very hard saying even today for Jews. Love your enemies. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and saying, rain on the just and on the unjust alike. Now we've looked at law. This is how Jesus interprets it. And his, his capstone is, in the light of loving your enemies, be you, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Meaning, 
if you really want to keep the law, if you really want to get the spirit of the law of love, you have to love your enemies. Now, I'm, I'm, again, just as we can't love without the love of God in our hearts, we certainly can't love our enemies without his love in our hearts. Next, Jesus moves to the economic model that originated in Mesopotamia. Tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in to steal. For where our treasure is, our heart will be also. He tells us about slavery. No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He didn't say you should not. He said you cannot. It's impossible to serve two masters. And of course, it's it's impossible to serve love, the sovereignty of love, and to serve self at the same time. And so Jesus then moves to reassuring his hearers that God understands all their economic means and tells us not to worry about what we eat or drink or about our body or what we wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And he says, you don't need to worry about anything, what you eat or drink For the Gentiles strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And then he says, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given unto you as well. Then he swings back to more of a legal perspective. Do not judge, so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you judge, the measure you give, the measure you will get. Why do you not? Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? He does not want us to have cold court over others and judge them, because we don't have any reason to judge. We're in the same boat, and we have the same value as God, and as one another before God. He then talks about different ways of looking at law. The the one serving new masters can be seen as a spiritual law because you can't break it. You can't serve two masters. It's just simply impossible psychologically. And he talks about the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing uh, and you will know them by their fruits. This is now cause-effect relationships. And so Jesus brings the law to its original form of cause and effect. And he ends with the house on the rock. It just makes good sense to build a house on the rock rather than on the sand. But I'm going to have to stop with this. But it gives you a taste of how Jesus took on Babylon. And he took on us, in a sense, because we live in a society that is very Babylonian by nature. Maybe not as many, much in some ways as other places, but, but we still have inherited this heritage of Babylon and ways of thinking about value and ways of thinking about love. So, the next topic.
is how Babylon crucifies Jesus and what led them to do so. And we will end, hopefully, tonight with Revelation 18 and the call. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that when Jesus talked to us about the law, he talked about our hearts. Because without our hearts, the law becomes meaningless. At best, we seek compliance, but Jesus sought to have our hearts of love. And we can only have that as we surrender to him daily and ask him to fill us with his love. May this be our experience on a daily basis so that we can be shining lights in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.